It is so good to see every, everyone today, um, everyone's smiling face. I would like you to turn to Psalm 119, verse number 45. I just want to say something briefly to begin before we read the second uh, or the next set and uh, starting in verse number 49. So let's look at verse 45. Psalm 119, verse 45. It says this. Several of you quoted it. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. This, this concept of liberty, this concept of liberty, this is, you know, whenever, whenever we come across something in the Bible that kind of intersects with what, what is called pop culture, a lot, of people, a lot of people don't know what pop culture is. Pop stands for popular. And so pop culture just refers to what's currently in vogue, what's currently trending. And I know, you know, a, a lot of us, uh, a lot of you might not pay attention to that, but a lot, a lot of people do. And, uh, and the term liberty, especially in Christian circles, is a very, is a very, common thing that's brought up, and, and it's, it's often set in contrast to things like being a Pharisee or a legalist. They talk about liberty, and it's coupled with the term grace. Liberty in the Bible is, of course, a, a biblical concept. It is a biblical concept, and it does refer to, to not being constrained by rules and things like that. But liberty um, as it's rightly understood, and, th- and this is the, the real key thing that I want to kind of remind you of. When you talk about liberty, and, and I'm going to give you, uh, when I say what I want to say, I'm going to follow it up with, with a, what, is a, what is a logical argument against what I said, okay? So liberty is not intended to be, liberty is not intended to be license. We talked about that last week, where, where you have freedom to do anything and everything, all right? Liberty doesn't exist like that anywhere, literally anywhere. It doesn't exist. Liberty always has boundaries. It always has boundaries. Even in China, did you know, I've been to China. Even in China, there's liberty, but it's all about the boundaries, right? Priscilla, did you go to China? You, okay, I thought you'd been, you went to India, that's right, yeah. So in China, there is something that you could call liberty. In other words, they don't tell you where you're going to eat, unless you're in a place that's locked down with COVID, but I digress. They don't tell you where you, where you can eat. You, you can go to a restaurant. You can go do things like that. So they have a semblance of liberty, and that's exactly what they say. We, our citizens have liberty in China. That's what they'll say. In the United States, as a, as a contrasting example, we have a, a, a great degree of liberty. Now, but that does not mean that... Uh, that we are free to do anything we want. Liberty must be bounded with law. Otherwise, it's license, okay? So when we talk about liberty, and that's how this is an important point for us to understand because these days, these days, this world is really, really working hard at redefining terms, taking words that you, you and I are familiar with and definitions that you and I are familiar with and without, letting, without informing us, without our knowledge, changing the meanings of those words with something else. 
And then using those words, like a good example is the word love. What, is that not with the LGBTQ movement? Is that not, is that, is that not their battle cry? That's their, their slogan. Love is love. Well, that's not love. That's lust. But see, they've changed the word love. They've, they've kept L-O-V-E and they've, they've altered the definition underneath it to lust, unbridled and wicked, unnatural lust. And we shouldn't be, listen, we shouldn't be ashamed to say that. Now, it's not that we want people that are involved in that kind of gross immorality to go to hell, but it's also, we, we want that sin to go to hell, right? We want that sin to go to hell, but we don't want the person who does it to go to hell. But that's not love. But see, I say, how can you say, you, how can you stop someone? How can you forbid someone from loving one another? I can't control who I love. We, listen, as believers, I'm not talking about, I don't, I'm not talking about conservative people, politically conservative. That's all fine and good. But what I'm talking about as Christians, even among spiritual conversation, we cannot cede ground on definitions. The moment you allow somebody to say love but mean lust, you have lost that argument. That's why they use it. The devil used it in the temptation of Christ. So do not give ground on, you know, another one. I'm digressing here, but just hang tight. We'll be down in a minute. Another one is when we're talking about uh, definitions of terms, that's one of the, that's one of the key things that even, even, even recently I saw a, a, a video. It was a video of, uh, this is a religious person who talked about the LGBTQ movement and how we as Christians need to, are going to embrace and, you know, welcome those types of people into the church. And before you know it, before you know it, you have a very big problem on your hands. And um, so we can't see ground to this. And even, even on, on the subject of the LGBTQ, because that's, listen, that's all over the culture now. It is everywhere. It's all over college campuses, even Christian campuses. This Asbury Revival, some of y'all have seen that in social media and stuff. The, and, you know, people have dared you to say anything against it. I wasn't there. I can't speak to, a great, to a, great, a great deal about it. But the person I heard giving basically a lecture, a homily, a sermon on the subject of the trans, homosexuality, and all that, he was giving that in association with the Asbury Revival. And so here's the thing. When we give... When we give, uh, when we seed ground in the terminology and we respect the terminology, well, then it, it, starts to, it starts to alter the way we think about it. We need to stick with biblical terminology, and if people don't understand, then we need to explain it, right? So, um, but as far as, as far as where we stand on these matters, listen, we're not, we are not going to give up what God says on the matter. It is clear. It is clear. But on the subject of liberty, um, as I said, all liberty has boundaries, has rules, has, has uh, limits to liberty. 
But the problem is the switch has happened in that the term liberty has, has begun to be redefined as something where anything is allowed without boundary. And if any boundary is put in place by God or man, then the cry is that liberty is being taken away. And that's just not the case. That's just not the case. And as we, as we saw last week, if we uh, consider the, the example I gave of, the, of a path that's hedged in with prickly bushes, holly bushes on either side, to the man who has a heart to walk in the path, that is God's way, God's truth, the prickly bushes are no bother to him. The limits to liberty don't bother him. But to the man who is constantly wanting to go out of the path, who has a heart, who has a heart that does not desire to be in the path, in the way of the Lord, those bushes are the biggest annoyance ever because they hinder him from doing his heart's desire. And he, he would be the man that cries, we don't have any liberty. We can't do what we want. Well, that's not liberty. And besides all of that, you forget everything I just said. Remember what the book of Ecclesiastes says. At the very end of the book, it says to the young man, he says, you do whatever you want, but remember, for all these things, God will bring thee into judgment. Remember, we can talk all we want about what man allows us to do and not to do and what the Bible says, but God is going to inspect every one of our lives. He is going to judge every one of us. And so we can imagine that we have liberty in this matter. That None of that matters. What matters is what God says because we will all stand before him and give an account. All right, that was my rabbit trail for today. So let's look at chapter 119, Psalm 119, verse number 49. It says this. I'll read verses 49 through verse 56. This is the set. This is the eighth set today. It says, Remember the word unto thy, remember the word unto thy servant, upon which thou hast caused me to hope. For this is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. The proud have had me greatly in derision, yet have I not declined from thy law. I remembered thy judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Horror hath taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. Thy statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I have remembered thy name, O Lord, in the night, and have kept thy law. This I had, because I kept thy precepts. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word this, this morning. I pray for wisdom. I ask you for grace, for boldness, for understanding for all of us as we look at your word. Please guide us to know what to say, to know what to learn. I pray that your spirit would teach us. Lord, I pray that you would uh, meet with us and uh, Lord, whatever we need, whatever kind of alterations that are needed in our lives, or might, we might just need to be encouraged. I pray that you would do that this morning and help your people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, look at verse number 48. Verse 48 says, Remember the word unto thy servant, upon which thou hast caused me to hope. Now, some, someone remind me of what the word hope means. 
We studied this before. It's been a while, but we talked about the word hope at some, at some length. Does anybody remember? Okay, so how is hope different than faith? How is hope different than faith? We'll talk about faith this morning in the service, but how is hope different? Because it is different. Anybody? Going once. Going. David. Okay, that's similar to what we talked about. But what, what, I, what I would say is, I would say the difference between faith and hope, they are very similar. They're two sides of a coin maybe or two aspects. At the core, you have what God says. That's the basis, right? The foundation of faith and hope is what God says. And if you broaden that to, to any general matter, you, we have faith and we have hope, you know, in, in a lot of things uh, that aren't just, you know, that aren't just uh, related to spiritual matters. But when we talk about faith and hope, what we're, ta- we're taking a word, we're trusting the word. The only difference is that faith deals with things, deals with present realities. Hope deals with future realities, things that have not yet occurred. The coming of Christ is our hope. It has not yet occurred. But yet we believe it, so it's similar. Our trust in Christ is a present reality. For He died for us, we stand by faith, right? So, in this it says that the Word of God is our hope. Now, when we talk about hope, the expectation, listen, oftentimes, and I'll touch on this a little bit more in a minute, but oftentimes when we lose hope, that's what's called despair. Because despair doesn't deal with things that have happened in the past, although that, that can be a cause for despair. See, what, here's how it works. The word biblical, the, the biblical word despair is the word that's commonly used in our day as depression. And the idea is that things that have happened in the past have so harmed us and hurt us and injured us that it's made us so that it's difficult for us to see any good in the future. You see, that's the hope, the part where hope comes in. So despair robs us of of the future. That's what it does. That's what we call, people call depression. When they get depressed, they lose hope. That's one of the key signs. You talk about depression and the term as it's used, that's, that's what it's referring to. They see no good thing in the future. And so they lose hope. But listen, in this world, there are many, many reasons for us to not hope. (laughs) There are many, many circumstances in this world that rob us and would lead us to believe that there's no good thing just over the the next, the the horizon. I mean, you you look at the world, you look at politics, you look at wars and rumors of wars. Just look around you. There is a great deal to cause people to not have hope. But the Christian's hope is not on Fox News. If you are looking for hope in Fox News, let me explain something to you about Fox News. And David can verify this because David is 
tech savvy is that they intentionally put salacious headlines to get people to click, even if they're not really accurate. In other words, salacious dealing with uh, things related to immorality and sexual matters. They intentionally put headlines that cause people to fear. They intentionally put headlines to manipulate your emotions to get you to click it because every time you click it, ad, ad revenue goes to them. It's money. The love of money is the root of all evil. Well, that's Fo I thought Fox News was Christian. Wake up. But you know what? CNN does it. MSNBC does it. WYFF does it. They all do it. They all do it. Here's the point. If you think, and if you, if you think that you are going to get hope from watching politics and the geopolitical events, forget it. The, I know this is a simple truth, but, but hear me. The Christian's hope is in God's word, period. We, we derive our sense of good in the future not from what is happening here on earth in, our, in the present, but based upon what God says. And so no Christian upon that basis should ever be in despair. Paul said, you remember in, I believe it's 2 Corinthians, Paul said, he said, uh, distressed but not forsaken. Right? There, was, there is always reason for a Christian to have hope. Now, listen, I say hope, I'm not talking about the chicken soup for the soul kind of hope where you just think of happy thoughts. No, I'm talking about, listen now, firm realities that God has in store for us. What does the Bible say? It says, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. You and I, ought to take that verse and just meditate on it. Spend this week, look up that verse, maybe make, it, make you a little note card or whatever you need to do, and you need to think about that verse. Because the depth of that verse is profound. Think about what it says. So our hope is God's Word. It is the substance of our hope. And in verse 49, it says, Remember the word unto thy servant, upon which thou hast caused me to hope. Now remember, I believe it was last week or maybe the week before that, we talked about praying God's word to him. That's, what we're, that's what's happening here. He's saying, Lord, remember what you said. Listen, that is the best way to pray. That is the best way to pray. But to do that, you have to be a Bible Christian. Right? That means you got to know what the Bible says. <laughs> That's one reason we're memorizing these verses. I, I, I hope that all these verses, we, we're, at, we're at the seventh set today. That means we've gone through, this will be 40, uh, I'm sorry, 56 verses we'll have gone through this week. I hope one of those verses has been in a prayer of one of your, one of your prayers at some point in the last seven weeks or eight weeks. It's been in mine. Now, I'm not bragging for sure, but, but I hope that it's come up in your heart. The Lord's reminded you of something. And the last thing from verse 49 is this, which thou hast caused me to hope. God causes us to hope in his word. 
He gives us the hope, the substance, the object of our hope, and then he works in us to cause us to lean upon it. That's, listen, that's the only thing that keeps the Christian out of despair. Let me say that again. That is the only thing. God is the only thing that keeps the Christian out of despair. That's it. Do Christians get to a point of despair? Yes. Should they? No. Because despair is when all hope is gone. And that is never true to God's child. It's never true. Verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction. For thy word hath quickened me. I want to ask you a question. When you're afflicted, you have pain in your body. You have very unpleasant and trying circumstances in your life. You have a, a loved one who is ill or you persecuted or someone injures you or harms you in some way. Maybe you have marital problems. Maybe your kids aren't following the Lord. Whatever the case might be, let me ask, you have affliction. That, that's, that's such a wide word. Has, there, there, almost anything can go in there. I just want to ask you this question. He says, this is my comfort in my affliction. Where do you turn for comfort? Where do you turn in times of affliction? God's word has been given to us for that purpose, right? But we must, listen now, in faith, turn to it. Here's the problem, though. When we get into affliction, even though God's word is given to us for comfort, we, our faith falters, and we begin, we begin to grasp for anything and everything in place of God and his word. It's true. We look for a substitute that's easier, maybe this more reputable, this more well-received. And you know what? The world has no lack of substitutes. But the, listen now, the end of the world's comforts, the end of the world's comforts is not comfort. It will not give you lasting comfort and hope. It might be, listen, it might be at the bottom of a bottle. People seek comfort in that. Sometimes it's in the arms of a man. People seek comfort in that too. None of those things will bring you comfort. You know, there was a, in, I'm just skipping, skipping along here. There was a, in Asa in 2 Chronicles chapter 16. The Bible says he was diseased in his feet. And who remembers what he did? In his affliction, the Bible says what? What did he do? Somebody help me. Somebody's read it recently, maybe. What did Asa do when he was diseased in his feet and was in affliction? He sought to the physicians. Now, are you saying it's wrong to go to the doctor? Well, of course I'm not saying that. But boy, my, your trust and my trust can't be in that. We have to turn to God first. Well, that's a health problem. Turn to God. That's the thing. Listen, 
The Lord is the Lord over all, including our bodies. Now, that doesn't mean that we will not have affliction. We will have affliction. The Lord said we would have affliction. In this world, ye shall have tribulation. That's what the book of John says, right? So we know we will have affliction and tribulation. But when we, when we are faced with affliction and tribulation, our, our default, our, our initial reaction ought to be to turn to God immediately. Lord, I'm sick. Lord, I have a bad diagnosis. Lord, I'm in despair. Lord, whatever the case might be. Turn to God instinctively. That's, that's the term. We turn to God instinctively. That's why he's given us his word. And you know what? Turning to God first, turning to God as your first priority in any time of affliction is actually an act of faith. Because you know what you're saying? You know what you're saying is, by turning to God first, instead of grasping at everything that might give you some comfort and hope, what you're saying is, Lord, ultimately, no matter if you use these other things or not, ultimately my comfort is coming from you. And you know what? If I'm sick or have, have a need in that way physically and I go and I turn to God and I talk to God about it and then I end up going to the doctor and the doctor helps me and he prescribes things and, and helps me. That happened to my wife recently. You know what I come back to? I say, Lord, thank you. You have been my comfort. And you know what? We look at that doctor and we say, thank you. God used you to comfort me, to help me, Right? Cambodians had, had the hardest time with that when we were missionaries. They had the hardest time understanding that you could, thank, you could thank two people. They wanted to pigeonhole you into thanking either your parents or God or the doctor or God. They could not understand that you could thank God knowing that God is the one who provides means for our comfort through other people. The church is an example of that. We can comfort one another. But oftentimes we don't turn to God and His Word because we don't believe there's comfort. How many of you have ever, just be honest a second, how many of you ever, have ever been in a situation where you were in distress or especially as it relates to like a, uh, like a, a spiritual problem or an emotional problem perhaps, and someone kind of callously handed you a Band-Aid with no empathy and said, just read your Bible. Have y'all ever experienced that? Just, you know, you just need to read your Bible. And the reality is, in a, there's, there's a, a grain of, of truth in that, right? We should turn to God's Word. That's what it says. This is my comfort in my affliction. So there is a reality that God's Word is a comfort to us. Yes. But to say that to someone, just slapping a Band-Aid on them and, and with no empathy, with no, with no compassion, which means to suffer with, but just coldly and blithely just slap a Band-Aid on somebody and say, you should read your Bible. Don't do that. Don't do that. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a person in earnest, in seriousness, in affliction, crying out to God and seeking God in His Word. Not just, well, let me just read a chapter and, you know, after I get done reading, you know, Matthew chapter 9, everything will be good. 
No, that's not how it works. And oftentimes, we have to go low. And once we're low, that's when we find the Word of God comforting us. And we find that what this is saying is true. But it's not true, it's not true to us in a kind of superficial way. Let the Word of God be your comfort in affliction. Psalm, uh, verse 51 says, The proud have had me greatly in derision, yet have I not declined from thy law. I could say so much about the proud, and uh, I'll just summarize it without going into all the verses. Actually, let's look at one passage. Look at Psalm 94, since we're already in the Psalms. I just want you to get a good idea of a description of the proud. As you look in the Psalms and the Proverbs especially, this term, the proud, you also have the wicked These are special categories of people. All of us have pride. Raise your hand if you don't have pride. No. (laughs) That was a trick question. All of us have pride, but when you're talking about the proud, that is the embodiment of pride. The wicked. All of us do wicked things, but the wicked is the embodiment of a wicked. It is where wickedness characterizes a person. All right? Psalm 94, verse 2. We'll read through verse 7. Lift up thyself, Thou judge of the earth, render a reward to the proud. Look what it says. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall, now what I want you to pay attention to is what are the wicked and the proud? These are overlapping in this passage. What are they doing? How long shall they utter and speak hard things? And all the workers of iniquity boast themselves. They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. In our day, they would say, what God? There's no God. The Bible says that God resisteth the proud. The proud proud are those that boast against God. God's person, God's truth, God's law. They know better. They mock, the Bible says, I'm not reading all the verses just for time, but they mock and harass and ridicule. What does it say in our verse here, in verse 51? The proud have had me greatly in derision. That means that's deride. It comes from the word deride. Ridicule, reproach, mock, laugh at. Because... You stupid people that believe that dumb fairy tale book. You are so ignorant. You don't believe in science, it said. They mock our faith. They mock God. They mock his law as outdated. We'll touch on that in just a second. His law is outdated. His law is not scientific. His, his word is, is useless. It's fairy tales. That's what they say. That's the proud. We have no need of God. We know better. You, you, listen, what I'm trying to describe to you is, is, is the, the, the mind and heart of people that you have heard. They boast themselves against God. 
That is a it might manifest itself differently in different times, but this is kind of the core, the essence of what the Bible speaks of as the proud. Not only what they think, but also what they do. And those are the people that are persecuting believers. Those are people that are boasting. Those are people that love money. It all goes together. In this case, the proud were the source of his, uh, of his ridicule. Let's move on to verse number 52. And this will probably be our last verse we can cover today. I remember thy judgments of old, <clears throat> O Lord, and have comforted myself. You know, Romans 15, verse 4 says this. I'll read it to you. It says this, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Notice the word comfort. So in the Psalm 119, verse 52, I remember thy judgments of old. This is a reference to God's word previously written. Now, going back to pop culture. In our day, in our day, old things are constantly ridiculed. That's one reason why the Bible is ridiculed, because it's ancient. There's a, a movement for people to only accept things that they have imagined that they thought up brand new. That's why communism has a resurgence. You know why communism is becoming so much more popular? It's because everybody thinks it's brand new. It's a new idea. Or the version that they have is different than every other one that has ever existed going back to the the revolution in Russia. This is new. This is different. This is the way you implement it in the way that, that it actually works. I mean, we're a lot smarter than they were back then. This is the thoughts of the proud. This is what they say. That's just one example. And they mock and ridicule time, listen now, time-tested truths. Now, when we talk about the old, remember thy judgments of old, Listen, we should not have a slavish loyalty to things that are old because they are old. However, the fact that they're old shows that they have stood the test of time and the test of examination and practice, right? The Word of God is one of those things. What the Bible says has held true in practice and under intense scrutiny and the fire of persecution. So we should be careful. Listen, for people my age especially, people especially younger than me, Joshua's age, there is a tendency to look at something that appears to us as aged and to, con and to think condescendingly about it. Uh, to be revolted by it. That's true. That's that philosophy that gets into our mind. Whereas God says, hold on now. Are not the scriptures old? Did not God create the world of old? 
Is not God himself the ancient of days from everlasting to everlasting? Some things God has established have stood the test of time. And those things need to be honored and respected. And that goes, and you know what? That goes all the way back to our, our personal uh, practice of rising in the presence of the hoary head, right? Giving honor to those that are older. We think, you know, we young, we young, young bucks, we think that the first time we have an affliction, we think, oh, no, nobody's ever had it, had it like this. I mean, this is the, I mean, look, it's happening to me. It's the worst thing ever. And what you don't realize is there, there are older people in our church that have been through that multiple times and are still here and still loving the Lord. And yet we tend to oftentimes, probably not our church, but in a lot of churches, and I'm not trying to cast shade on churches. But I'm just saying the mentality exists where, where, well, we need to out with the old in with the new. Well, hold on now. Maybe we need to humble ourselves and realize that time-tested truths are not to be so hastily disposed of. Right? And we need to hold fast to what God has given us, though it be ancient. The fact that, is, that it is ancient and not the newest thing to come out of the box office or whatever shows that it has value. It has permanence. Don't be afraid of the word old. Well, unless you're talking about your own age, you know, but don't be afraid of that word. The culture might be afraid of it and they might disdain it, but that's not, that, that shouldn't be what Christians do. Christians should hold those old truths that are true, that are real, and bring them right up into the present, right? That's what Christians should do. All right, let's pray.